Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for your great love for us, which created us and sustains us, redeems us, sanctifies us, secures us, will one day deliver us and glorify us. Father, I pray that for the people in this room, I pray specifically for those who are members of your family, your, your body, the church, that you would hold us fast till the end. And Father, you would use all those means prescribed in your word to do that. Lord, the stable, unchanging tether that is the truth. Father, the fellowship of believers who care for one another enough to teach each other and encourage each other and to correct each other and to exhort each other. Father, keep us. Your Holy Spirit that indwells in us. Father, I pray that you'd guard us from error, both personally and collectively. I pray that as a people, we would be sharp and clear so that we might worship you well because we know you well. That we might speak of you truly and accurately because we know of you truly and accurately. That we might live in a way that reflects what we know, what we teach, what we believe, and find real life there. So Lord, have your way here with this, with us, with this text, with our understanding and application of it. God, move us, I pray, to active response, beyond nodding agreement, intentional obedience, Father. Move us there, I pray. Lord, be glorified in us. Be glorified in our faithfulness. Be glorified in our confidence in you. Be glorified in our willingness to speak of you to others. Be glorified in our perseverance. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars, insincerity of liars, whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. That first phrase ought to really grip us. I mean, that's a hook if there's ever a hook in this text. The Spirit expressly says, in later times, some will depart from the faith. Some will depart from the faith. I was listening to an interview the other day by a gentleman named Dr. John Marriott. This is an area that he has specialized in over the last several years, and it is an area of deconversion or deconstruction. And as he assimilates this data, and sometimes it's a little hard to track, honestly. There are no, there are no good measures here. Okay? There are no good surveys that are definitive. Um, we do the best we can with piecing together bits of evidence and stories and statistics and numbers and denominational reports and all those things to get a snapshot of what Christianity looks like in America 
right now. And this is, this is what he said. These are his conclusions. Over the last 15 years or so, the number of people who at one time previously identified as followers of Christ is dramatically diminishing. As far back as 2009, the Pew Research Center has been studying this, this movement, if you will, this negative movement in Christianity. It said people are leaving Christianity, or at least leaving what they would call religion of any sort, at five to six times the number that we've seen in the past, that we've seen historically. It's escalated five to six times. Pew Research said that for every one person who is becoming a Christian or joining a, a local fellowship, for every one who becomes a Christian, four people are leaving Christianity. An organization called the Pine Tops Foundation. Again, this organization is centered around loosely. Their purposes are studying evangelism and the growth of the church and promoting both. They conducted a study where they did an aggregate, all the information that they could assemble, Pew Research, Barna Research, and others. And they came out with this conclusion. The next 30 years will represent the largest missions opportunity in the history of the United States. The next 30 years. The largest and fastest numerical shift in religious affiliation in the history of our country is happening right now. And he said one indicator, that growing base of the church, where at the very least, churches who are going to sustain their numbers will have to bring up their own children and families in the faith and keep them. They noted if the trends hold, we should expect to see about one million students leaving the church every year for the next 30 years. That's their prediction. 30 million. This would be devastating in numbers. And we shouldn't be shocked by this because as long ago as the first century, when the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write these words to Timothy, he says not as a, a prediction or a suggestion or a study, but as a prophecy that in the later time, some are going to depart from the faith. This idea of deconstruction, deconversion, that's just a modern way that we term an old, sad reality called apostasy. And deconstruction and deconversion shouldn't surprise us. It was prophesied by us. And again, the question might be begged then, so are you saying we're in the later times? Or latter times? Or last times? Or last days? Are we in those days? The Spirit emphatically says, clearly says, this is what you can expect. Are we in those times? The answer most assuredly is yes. And that's not, again, that's not a biblical prophecy. I'm not a prophet. That's not me predicting the events that are about to come or even evaluating the events we're in. That's simply an assessment of reality. John Wesley said, the last days began when the Lord ascended and they continue until he returns. George Knight defines it this way, the last days were inaugurated by our Messiah. They were characterized by the Spirit's presence and power and they will be consummated by the return of of Christ. So this end times, these latter days, those began the moment that Jesus gave that great commission to his disciples, visibly ascended up into heaven, and told us to await his return. The angel said, in the way that you saw him ascend, you'll see him return. And this is the window that we're in. We shouldn't be surprised. This is the reality that we live in. And the cause for this more than any other, and I'm going to give you this message, I'm kind of like backing up the, the dump truck and just unloading a pile of stuff that we'll be sorting through for the next several weeks. 
in First and in Second Timothy. But I have to lay some precedence here for a moment. If apostasy is the problem, if this is the great big issue, we shouldn't be shocked by it. We should at least be looking to the cause of it, and this should concern us. And, and let me say this just for an aside from your notes for a moment. Be careful that you don't fall into that trap of disassociating doctrine from practical living. I mean, that seems to be such a trend today. Maybe that's too broad of a category. But that doctrine doesn't matter. You know, doctrine divides. Do doctrine is cold or indifferent. Doctrine is only for a certain subset of Christians. It has no effect on daily life. Nothing could be farther from the truth. At the headwaters of everything that we believe and then do stands what we believe to be true. And you can't live a healthy Christian life that's rooted, based in, dependent on anything that's not true. And when your emotions are failing you and your willpower is weak and you're struggling with temptation or difficulty or hardship or persecution, what is it that you will turn to again and again and again? What is true? Why, why do we sing these songs like we have with propositional truth in them? So you would recognize the enemy will not ultimately prevail. Our security is finally and totally in Christ. We know what is true and so we have to preach the truth to ourselves over and over and over again so that we might live well. You can't disassociate these things. And apostasy, this turning away, deconversion, deconstruction, which we're seeing over and over and over again in prominent and not so prominent so-called believers or former believers, this apostasy is always rooted in bad or in deficient theology. It's always rooted there. You, you can trace it back when someone says, I used to be a Christian, but now, or I used to be a believer, but now, I, I used to be in church, but now, if you can press the point enough, you're going to find one of two things to be true. And we're going to focus on one of those elements today and another one next week. One of those elements is going to be this, something that's true, something that's foundational, something that's orthodox to our faith that we have believed since the beginning, they've deviated from, they've left behind. Now, the second truth that we most often find is something in their own personal moral life is causing them to deviate from the truth. And both of those are roots, but we're going to focus on the, the truth aspect this week and the life aspect a little bit more next week. But bad theology, it's just simply wrong, or deficient theology, that's just not enough. Let, let me give you an example of deficient theology, and, and I, have to, I have to dance around this one a little bit delicately because... You know, when I'm, when I'm preaching a sermon on a Sunday morning, I'm preaching it to you. I'm not preaching this to the world. I'm not preaching this to anybody anywhere who might listen. But at the same time, it is public. And I, and I know certain people are listening, so I have to be careful with the details here. I know a, I know a man, uh, an associate, a former associate, um, friend of sorts that founded a church. And, and I know his background. I mean, cause I, I know him and worked with him and, and know his understanding of church and church life. And in his mind, doctrine was always unnecessary. Again, he, he would have been of the mindset that says, that's what divides people. We need to find things that bring people together. You know, younger generation, they don't care about doctrine. You know, they, they care about things that we do together. They care about the fellowship, about the life, the energy, etc. You know, all that doctrinal teaching just dries the church up. It drives people away, and, and it creates sort of a classroom instead of a fellowship. That would have been his philosophy, I think. He started a church, and I won't tell you the name of the church, but this is, this is straight from their own statement. Blank church. <laughs> is a life-giving church where we keep it simple. Love God, love people, serve others. 
Now, on, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with that statement. I mean, if you ask Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He would have said those two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength in your mind. And the second commandment is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. In this are all the law and the prophets. I get this. Serve one another. But by itself, it's not really enough. And often, it's just a cover for we don't want to go any deeper than that. And our definitions of that can be super subjective. And when he says this, it's a life-giving church. My thought is this. How do I give life apart from the doctrinal truth wherein life is birthed? You shall know the, the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's where real life is found. Substatement under that, love God, love people, serve others. We also keep it fun because we believe that church should be fun, not endured. And it's a place to belong. We like to say you can belong before you believe and believe before you behave. You sort that out yourself. I, that's a word salad to me. When it comes to the body of Christ, I, here, here, let me say this. Some of you are guests here today. Hey, glad y'all are here. <laughs> welcome. I want you to feel welcome. I, I want you to feel welcome. Sometimes people ask the question, what about so-and-so? What if a person like this came? Fill in the definition or description. I want people to feel welcome here. I want you to feel welcome. Walk in these doors. If you're a guest here, I hope you felt welcomed and greeted. But when we say belong, we're talking about belonging to something, and it's not our club. It's not our organization. It's about belonging to Christ. You see, what really makes us distinct is not that we look somewhat alike or that we may or may not vote somewhat alike or live in the same neighborhoods. What really makes us a distinct people is that we all belong to Christ, and so His Spirit is in us. And when it comes to belonging to Christ and believing in Christ, that necessarily creates behaviors like Christ because those whom He justifies... He also sanctifies. And we're not on the same page or same place in terms of the story of our sanctification, but we're on the same process. God is making us to be more and more like Christ because we belong to him. But just for this particular church that didn't teach doctrine, didn't teach theology, just taught that superficial thing, let me just give you the conclusion of the story without the details. They close their doors. They don't exist anymore. You see, that sort of church has nothing to guard them against the tide of unbelief, has nothing to do, has nothing to secure them against the culture that aims against them, has nothing to offer those people who are trying to live a Christian life in real and practical ways every single day. See, I would say that's an example, not bad theology as much as deficient theology. What does it mean to love one another? What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to serve in a way that honors Christ? I, I want you to remember what Paul wrote to Timothy just a chapter ago. Chapter 3, verse 15. Remember, this is sort of like the hub of the wheel of this letter. He's describing church and why he's writing these words. He says, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He's saying we are people of the truth. I mean, if we have something, it's this. We believe that which is true, established by God for all times, for all people, for all places. This is who we are. And he uses these two analogies. You're a pillar and a buttress. So as a pillar, the responsibility of the church is, is to hold the truth up, to elevate it, to put it on display. It won't be embraced by everyone. It'll be argued. It'll be hated even by some, but it'll be undeniable. We need to hold the truth up. We don't need to be apologetic, fearful about what we believe to be true. This is just the truth as God has revealed it. So we hold it up like a pillar 
but also buttresses. The church buttresses the truth. And so together, we're supporting and sustaining the truth together. We're correcting one another, encouraging one another. We're teaching one another and learning from one another. We're walking in concert, Lord willing, with the historic church. This morning I taught in the first round of our new Meaningful Membership class what we teach as a church. And one of the things I shared with people in the room this morning was we, as much as possible, want to be as aligned, aligned as much as possible with the historic church. Sometimes I wonder if, if an apostle could spend a month with us seeing what we do, listening to what we teach, watching, observing, participating in how we worship, praying with us, fellowshipping with us, being in our homes, would he say, this looks, I mean, it's kind of weird and modern, but it looks a lot like what we do. It looks like our Christianity. It looks like the first century. Or would he say, what in the world is this? If someone from the Reformation era came, someone so committed to restoring the true gospel to a so-called Christian world that had lost it, would he say, yes, you have it? We affirm these orthodox statements of faith. See, we're people of the truth, pillars and buttresses. And Paul would write this to Timothy in his second letter. All scriptures breathed out by God. What is this truth? It's scriptural truth. That's what Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.15. I'm writing these things to you, what we would call now scripture inspired by God. In 2 Timothy, he says all scriptures breathed out by God. Referencing all those Old Testament texts that we should still study and understand. He goes further. Scripture, he says, is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This completeness, this every, there's a doctrinal term for that. Sufficiency. The sufficiency of Scripture to establish for us what's right, what's true, what we should believe, what we should do. All of this is contained in Scripture. Helpful little book that I would recommend. I believe we have these down in the bookstore. Tim Challies, called The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment. Listen to, what, listen to this statement. When you and I have rejected the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture, okay, so our idea of truth, both what we believe, what we do, if it comes from any other source, if we equate anything to Scripture, when we reject the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture, we allow Christians to depend on things other than the Bible as their guide to matters of life and faith. In particular, people began to depend upon mysticism, upon ways of supposedly knowing God apart from the Bible. That's mysticism. They look inward for intrinsic wisdom rather than outward to the Bible for its extrinsic wisdom. They forsake biblical reason in favor of feelings, voices, visions, or other subjective means of knowing God, supposedly knowing God. He said this is a deadly error, for spiritual discernment must be founded upon God's objective revelation of himself in Scripture. We can only judge between what's wrong and what's right when we know what God says to be true. And we can only know this from Scripture. And that's the foundation. And so when we're teaching this as a church, what we say in our confession, for the New Hampshire Confession, is this. We believe the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction has God for its author, salvation for its end, truth without any mixture of error for its matter, that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us, and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union, and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. So our foundation is true, so therefore, let me hit your notes so you can follow along my thoughts here for a moment. The greatest threat 
to the contemporary church. When I say contemporary, I don't mean that in, in terms of style. I mean that in terms of era, this age of church. The greatest threat to the contemporary church is not, at, is not outward. It's not external. It's not the world that we live in. It's not the government that we're under. It's not the increasing numbers of unbelievers. It's not the antagonism. It's not the culture. It's not the times. It's not Satan. The greatest challenge to us today is this. It's from false teaching and false teachers. The decline that we're seeing in the church, and I'm speaking uniquely to our culture, the decline that we're seeing is not about outward pressures and difficulties. It's, it's not because, well, it's harder to be a Christian today than it's ever been. I might concede that. I'm not enough of a historian, whether church or just national history, to be able to say that definitively. But I can concede the point. It's harder to be a Christian in America today than perhaps it's ever been. But that makes no difference. Because in places much harder to be Christian, the church is thriving and growing. In places like China, the numbers are going upward and skying upward. Even in places like India, where I mentioned to you several weeks ago, a number of their states have passed very oppressive anti-conversion laws. And they are persecuting, physically persecuting, Christians and church leaders. The gospel is taking root in amazing ways and places, and the church is growing. How do we understand this? It's not the externals that are our biggest challenge. It's, it's the internals. He says, some will depart from the faith. And Catch this just for a moment. I have to be careful not to go on too many tangents. My tangents make sermons long, so I apologize. <laughs> Consider the context just for a second here. All right, so by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, a church gets planted in an unlikely place, a city called Ephesus. The center of worship in Ephesus is dedicated to the goddess Diana. Temples and structures, but not just Diana. A plethora of false gods. But Diana sits at the center of this. And somehow the gospel takes root there and begins to grow. And a young man is being mentored. and He's going to become an elder, pastor in that church. His name is Timothy, along with other elders. And we might think in our just sort of conventional wisdom way that Paul would be saying to Timothy, Timothy, here's your challenge. And you've got all these people around you that worship Diana. And this is what they believe, and this is what they say, and this is what they're going to do, and this is how they're going to make life hard for you. And by the way... The government accepts that worship. It's endorsed. They will not accept yours. You know, all these things. He didn't tell Timothy, as you're, as you're leading the, the, this, this nascent church, be concerned about all these externals. No, he says, here's what you need to be concerned about. Some are going to depart from the faith because of deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons being promoted, promulgated through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. He's telling him the source of all false teaching is the same in every flavor, every expression, every iteration of it, every false teaching that counter man's counter dicks the teachings of Scripture all starts in the same place, and that's hell. It's Satan. Satan is the, Satan is the original. He's the first liberal theologian. He's the first one. This goes back to the Garden of Eden in, in Genesis chapter 8. Did, did God really say that? We say something in our membership class. Why is it not enough to just simply say, well, I believe the Bible? Because nobody just believes the Bible. We believe certain things about the Bible. We believe certain interpretations from the Bible and certain applications and implications from the Bible. 
Satan was the first one to question, is that really what the Bible means? Is that what God intended? Is that really what God said? And that's been the essence of liberal theology from the very beginning. Let's disconnect from, let's untether from, let's remove our historical connection from the words that God has given us in Scripture. And that's where it all begins. The source of all false teaching is the same. And the instruments of false teaching are hypocrites and liars. Here's a question I've had, and I'm going to try to answer it just solely from this text. I wonder this sometimes. I'm, I'm watching something on, on television, and it's a teacher that I would consider to be a false teacher. Or I go to the bookstore and I go over that you know, religion section, which is mostly populated by false teaching. We were, Cecilia and I were at a bookstore in, in Birmingham a few weeks ago, and we were walking this bookstore with, with Sarah, and you know, I was, I'm over there in the religion section, and I told Cecilia, would it be okay if I just like hover over here? And watch people pick up books and then go, um, not that one. <laughs> no, you don't want that one. Look, t- two books over to the right, that one. Yeah, that, that's a good one. Good, good. So what I did was I said, I hope they don't mind this, but I'm over there and I get some of these uh, Jesus calling and stuff, and I kind of slip them in behind um, some of the John Piper ones over here, and I took a couple of ones over here, and I slid them over here. I said, maybe at least they won't stand out as much. But I look at these sections that are just filled with these things, and sometimes I wonder when I'm reading these false teachings or I'm listening to these false teachers, here's a question I have, and maybe you've had it too. Do these people really believe what they're saying? Because sometimes incredulously I'm saying, you can't even believe that yourself. What you're saying, I, I'm, I'm watching something so egregious the other day and how he has become a self-proclaimed billionaire, I have no idea, and have millions of followers, and I'm watching some absolute godless, not just spiritually or theologically deficient, but absolutely just abjectly evil false teaching by Kenneth Copeland. And I'm watching him speak, and I said, does he really even believe this himself? And I look at this text, and I think by the words of Scripture here, these two phrases are doubly damning. The insincerity of liars, deceitful spirits. He's talking about deliberate pretense and deliberate falsehood. The essence of hypocrisy is that you're playing a part, playing a role. Just playing a role. Just just playing a part. And so much has been taught that's false because it's appealing and and it's attractive and it's profitable. Just play a part. Just play a role. But yet it also says some have consciences that are seared. I, I think if you play a role long enough, if you teach something long enough, if you repeat something long enough, even you begin to believe it's true. It becomes your new reality. And when you don't repent, you don't repent, you don't respond to correction, when, when you don't yield to what Scripture says, something happens to us, whether it's sin that we're involved in or false teachings that we continue to promote and accept, and our consciences get seared. In other words, we're not sensitive anymore to the work of the Holy Spirit there in that area. We don't see it. We don't feel it. We don't respond to it. And, and we see it's happening again and again. But these instruments are false, of false teaching are hypocrites and, and liars. This is the challenge to the church. The challenge to the church is that we're not not discerning. Paul said this to to Timothy. I I skipped some things there. I skipped a statement I meant you to have, and I want you to write it down. because I want to come back to it because I think it's critical. When you and I disregard doctrine which it seems more and more and more doing, 
When you disregard doctrine, and, and doctrine is just a word for truth. When you disregard truth, you're committing slow spiritual suicide. Slow spiritual suicide, whether that's you personally or whether that's any church. And, and my aim is not to throw dirt on dying denominations and churches. But you can't miss it if you're paying attention at all to the religious culture that we live in today. And where did the decline begin, which is now leading to outright demise? Where did it begin? The abandonment of doctrine. The abandonment of truth. The abandonment of clear doctrine. And, and let me speak again. I'll, I'll address this a bit more next week. But I want to speak to life and doctrine too, that connection there. Because this is not just cold indifferent stuff. Paul didn't simply tell Timothy, make sure you get the facts right and you'll be fine. Paul made sure to tell Timothy, make sure your life and your facts align. Both of these are shortcuts to apostasy. A life of compromise, hidden sin, a life of unrepentant sin is a shortcut to apostasy as well as a life of rejection or abandonment or disregard for good doctrine. You know, he told Timothy in chapter 1, verse 5, I want you to have a love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. He told him in verse 19 of chapter 1, hold the faith with a good conscience, truth, and life. He said in chapter 3, verse 9, hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. To everyone who's going to be a deacon, they need to do this. They need to hold the faith, and they need to live in a way that their lives reflect it with a clear conscience. I think one of the reasons that Paul was such a good theologian is that he was so committed to personal holiness. He saw those things aligned. And a clear conscience has to be prized by us all. When you and I grow comfortable with sin in our lives, when we grow comfortable with spiritual compromise or disobedience, we're on our way to heresies, all sorts. That's why we'll see next week, or the week to follow, 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Both are necessary. Persist in doing this. Because if you do so, he said, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So if doctrine is necessary. The neglect of doctrine only contributes to our own spiritual decline and then death. If the abandonment of doctrine or false doctrine is our biggest challenge, what should we do? Here's the finally statement. A healthy church led by godly leaders and filled with discerning saints will point out theological error and false teachers with love and refuse to be offended when that happens. Circle that part, underline, highlight it. Put some marks all around that part. I can remember years ago, this was in the first year, maybe the second year, that I was pastor here at Calvary. I was teaching midweek Bible study. Don't worry, I'm not just rehashing it. This is new and fresh, but it was, we were in 1 Timothy. And I decided at that time I had a blog post that I'd, I had done maybe a, two years prior in my previous church where I wrote about false teachers and false teachings, and I said, and yes, I'm going to name names. It's my blog, I can do whatever I want with it. And so I said, I've named names. Then I went to part two, and I named more names. And so I spoke of some of those names on that Wednesday night. I gave you just one today, one of the most egregiously glaring ones. But I listed a, a pretty long list of names that were currently popular and um, influential. And, and I can remember distinctly losing a couple of families just over that. How dare you judge them? How dare you call them out? That is so divisive. Shouldn't we just all agree? Shouldn't we all get along? Doctrine divides. I said, you're right, it does divide. It divides truth from error. 
it, it divides life from death. It, it, it divides spiritual health from spiritual sickness. It, it, it divides spiritual drift from spiritual mission. It, it divides faithfulness, endurance, and perseverance from deconstruction, deconversion, and apostasy. So yes, it necessarily divides. And sometimes we have to call them out. But I would challenge you, don't be offended. Don't be offended. I thought about this. This is more of a concession on my part and a bit of an apology. Every now and then, there's just not enough time to deal with the doctrinal issue in front of you. Um, I'll catch someone one or two minutes before the service is about to start. And I know I don't blame you for this because I know you don't get a chance to talk to me often or you don't think about this during the week. You saw me, so you thought you'd ask and you'll bring something up. And, and sometimes I'm caught in the middle and my mind is spinning about a thousand miles per hour. Like, do I take the time necessary in this moment standing in this aisle to completely deconstruct what you just said? Or to say why I don't agree with that teacher that you just quoted to me. But we need to, we need to be able to do that. And that happens well in small groups where the Bible is center. That happens well in discipling groups where our focus is not just on getting the facts right, but living right and encouraging one another. And we have to be sure that we're not offended by those things. And we need to point those out with the right motives. We're not trying to promote ourselves. We're not trying to establish ourselves as higher, better, greater. If our motive is love, we want the best. We want our collective message to be clear. We want our witness to be strong. We want people to hear and follow the right things, and this is something that's necessary that we do, that we be discerning. A specific, specific example in this text, which I won't spend too much time on for time's sake, is this next part of the text, where he, for certain false teachers, he's speaking in general terms, false teachers in general, and he says, let me give you a specific example in their context. In their context, he mentions those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods. Okay? That, that's not typical in our context, okay? So what he's talking about here is, is what was prevalent in the first century, and really in the early centuries of the church, that we would just loosely categorize as asceticism. Asceticism. Asceticism loosely defined as denial of self, whatever that may be, normal, natural, God-given desires for the sake of a higher spirituality. So in other words, he's got people that are teaching against creation. He's got people saying against marriage. And so by abstaining from marriage, what he's really saying, and by the way, this is going to be a bizarre statement for the 2023, 2023 context that we live in. To abstain from marriage, he's saying abstain from sex, because you know in the Bible, sex and marriage go together. You, you, you kids know that, right? Those are not two separate categories. When the Bible speaks of sex, it's always, universally, 100% of the time, talking about sex rightly in the context of marriage. Okay, this, that's not our lesson today. Talk about that at home over lunch. So when he's talking about abstaining from marriage, he's not saying don't get married, have sex. No, no, those fit together. To separate those things, it is called fornication, adultery, etc. Okay, so why would I deny this physical gift that God has given, exercise rightly, parentheses, in the context of marriage, or foods that God has said are okay to have? This is not a statement about health. If you're on certain meal plans and dining for your health, I, you know, I get it. We were with my mom this weekend, and now she can't eat anything. So, you know, I don't, I don't even, I'm not even sure what food to give. She can't have salt in anything, and... Um, can't have bacon. I mean, that's, a, that's hard. And I felt bad, but we, we did take out for breakfast yesterday morning, and as I said, Mama's bacon's good. I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> you want some of these grits? No, I can't have cheese. I'm sorry. You want a plain pancake? 
No, it's tough, but this is not about health reasons. So again, the idea here, this, this asceticism has some roots, okay? I'll do this very quickly, historically. One is the root of Gnosticism. If you've ever heard of Gnosticism, I'm giving you the basic version of this. Simple version of Gnosticism is that, that the body itself is sinful, and so if you deny the body, you can be spiritual, but it's a separation of body and spirit. And so this idea that I'll be elevated spiritually by denying myself physically. Another root of this is legalism. You know, any attempt to add anything to the finished work of Christ. That's what really was the issue in, in Ephesus, that these people were taking the gospel, faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and saying, but yeah, to really be a Christian, don't marry and don't eat meat. And then you'll be on an elevated plane. And, and there's also confusion about the gospel here. And of course, the fruit of this sort of thing, where you begin to add things to the gospel, you begin to require things. And, and by the way, we can do this too sometimes subtly. You find something that's very beneficial for you, that's healthy for you, prudent even for you, and you make it a prescription for somebody else. I'll give you an example. I can remember sitting in seminary class. We we're doing this class called uh, Formation in, in Spirituality, Christian Formation, Spiritual Formation, something like that, but Formation or Spiritual Life. The instructor told us that every good and godly person in history, I may be quoting them a little off, but it sounded like this, Every good and godly person in history got up before 5 a.m. and had a quiet time. I'm thinking, darn. <laughs> I had struggled with that. I, I, if you would have told me every good and godly Christian starts a quiet time at midnight, I'd say, fine, no problem, I can do that. I have no problem doing that. But when we begin to find those things that are beneficial to us, if it's good for you to get up at 4 a.m. and meet with the Lord, by all means, do it. If you're a life group leader and you're prescribing that to your group as the means to godliness, don't do it. Those are outside the bounds of what's required of us. And so this idea of legalism, this idea of, of these excesses added to the gospel just creates division. And those divisions are not healthy divisions and self-righteousness. But the point of it all is what we teach absolutely matters. It trickles down. It, it affects real living things. And if you've got these brand new believers in Ephesus who came straight out of paganism... And now they're told they can't eat meat because that meat some way associates with those temple practices. So I've got to leave meat altogether. Or now they're told because their temple practices were so ungodly in terms of sexuality that you can't have sex anymore, even in the context of marriage. Those are not things the gospel requires. Doctrine and life can't be separated. So here's the challenge for us in conclusion. Discernment is our aim. Always getting better and better at discernment discernment is not just a gift. I know people say, oh, you know, I've got the gift of discernment, which sometimes means, I won't say always, but sometimes means for those who say it is, I just go with my gut on everything and my gut's always right. Discernment is a skill. Discernment is a skill, learning to rightly handle the word of truth. Learning to handle it rightly, apply it correctly, consistent, uh, consistently, contextually, in concert with all the rest of Scripture, that's a skill developed over, over time and study. Discernment's the aim. And wise discernment, circle that word wise, the disordered discernment that doesn't create more division or more conflict, create more headaches, wise discernment requires theological triage. And I mentioned this before. The idea of theological triage is not every doctrine Every teaching is as important as every other doctrine and teaching. 
It doesn't mean we don't care about things that are true. It means some things are on a different plane. Let me give you what is sort of my version of the terminology. It's widely accepted, I think, among conservative Christians, evangelical Christians today, of tears. One, you've got a tear that would be essential to the gospel. Things that are essential to the gospel are our absolutes. Without these, we lose the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. You can't deny the virgin birth or the physical death or the bodily resurrection or the visible ascension, or the imminent return of Christ, and in any, any biblical way, call yourself a Christian. Not historical, not orthodox, not biblical. These are non-negotiables for us. Essential, they're, they're absolutes. Second would be levels of doctrine that we would say are urgent for the health and practice of the local church. Urgent. These are things that form our convictions. So while I get that I have brothers and sisters in other denominations who might baptize in a different way, or understand their giving and receiving the Lord's Supper in a different way. We have biblical convictions that define us and say, this is what we believe and why, and this is why we do it this way, and those things are critical. Or whom we will ordain to be an elder or a pastor, and who we will not. Now, these things are critical things. They're urgent for our health and practice of our church. Number three would be things that are important to Christian theology. They're important. Ultimately, those are our own opinions or our conclusions. But they are disputable. If you were to ask me about eschatology, I could tell you my convictions about it, my conclusions. In a sense, I would say opinion, not just that it's just based on ideas, it's based on study, but it will differ with other good and godly Christians, teachers, pastors. These third-level things that are important to our theology, we should discuss them. And you should study them and, and derive conclusions on them for yourself. should not necessarily divide us. We should be able to talk about eschatology and the doctrine of the end and not all be on the same page with the exception of a few critical things that we must believe. Jesus is going to return. He's going to consummate the end of the age. He is going to physically raise his people and raise the dead. He is going to judge the living and the dead. He is going to usher in judgment and a new heaven and a new earth and an eternal lake of fire. These things are undeniable things. The how, the when, the chronology, those are different. The fourth would be things that are just unsettled by orthodox conservative Christians. These would be our preferences. They're just not settled issues. And there are reasonable differences on these things. And, and sometimes these can be even, you know, these, this is a continuum. It's not a hard and fast list. There's a range of these things. Some are closer to two than three. Some are closer to one than two and all points in between. But sometimes these are just our preferences. I was thinking as an unintentional object lesson, you know, we're singing a song at the end that's based on a familiar hymn. And there are probably some of you in the room saying, hey, that's really cool. That's like an, that's like an old hymn set to a new way, and, and that's cool. That's, some of you are probably listening, I've never heard that before. Wow, what great truth. Some of you are listening, why can't we sing it the, the right way? <laughs> I get it. That's not tier one or two or three. That's preference. I get it. Those are preference things. And so we give way to the body on those things. But how we react and respond to those teachings, to those doctrines, should match the level of that teaching's importance. All right, let me explain what I'm saying. How we respond should match the level of the teaching's importance. So a primary doctrine, that's worth fighting for. That's worth fighting for. In the, in the history of the church, people die for this. They go to the stake for this. Those are things we just, we, we don't negotiate. We're not going to negotiate absolutes or essentials. Secondary doctrines are worth assembling or dividing over. 
Those are worth deciding. You know, I, 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 can, I can believe that you're a Christian too. And one day we're going get, to get to heaven. And when we get there, Jesus is going to tell you how wrong you are. And that's why we, you and I don't go to the same church. That's worth it. That's okay. Don't buy the notion that there should be no denominational differences, that we all should just love God, love people, serve one another. Listen, there's fundamental differences that affect how we worship, decisions that have to be made. We have to decide who, and, who can and who can't preach to us, who, who can and who can't be baptized by us, who can and who can't receive the Lord's Supper from us. These are things that have to be decided. Tertiary doctrines, third-level doctrines, they're worth studying and deciding over, but not worth dividing over. Certainly worth your time. Certainly worth our study. We shouldn't divide over them. As long as you and I affirm the essentials, the necessary gospel, even our specific soteriology is not worth dividing over. Some of you consider yourself Calvinistic. Some of you would consider yourself Armenian-leaning. Some of you don't even know what those terms mean. What's most critical, level one, is what is the gospel. We don't have to exactly agree on all the nuances and all the details. Here's your word of the day. I put three asterisks beside this one because I didn't know what this word was, but I thought, I can't say primary, secondary, tertiary, and fourth. That was that made me sound like a doofus. <laughs> so primary, secondary, tertiary, quaternary, fourth level. These are okay to hold. It's fine if you believe that. But they're not okay to disrupt fellowship over. That's not okay to disrupt fellowship over. But all of us endeavor to be humble, teachable, and diligent. Humble, because we've all got something to learn. None of us possess it all. None of us. Always learning, always growing. Teachable. Are we willing to let people speak into us and evaluate what is spoken to us by the Scriptures? You know, it's this tension even when I'm preaching to you. I, I, want, I want to preach to this tension. I want to preach to the tension of people who are studying the Bible for themselves. And already have a sense of what they believe and hold dear. Even if you've never thought about those different tiers, you know what's just absolutely critical. And there may be some things you're just not sure about. But I want to speak to the context of people who are digging in for themselves. Simultaneously, I want to speak to people who are willing to have their preferences challenged, their understandings adjusted, and even if necessary, just like I would for myself, even beliefs changed if, not by force of my will or presentation, but by a demonstration of Scripture, this is what's true. And we need to adjust to it, always being our guide. And diligent. Diligent. It kind of goes without saying. And it's one of the great obvious truths of our spiritual warfare. We sang about Satan and knowing that he will not prevail. And knowing in the end, one little word shall fail him. Not from us. From our king. From the king who sits enthroned. It'll be over primary work of this great spiritual enemy that we have, who wreaks so much havoc, creates so much destruction, and whose aim and bent is to kill us. His primary tool is deception. Deception. He is a deceiver, and he's a liar, and he's been so from the beginning. If that's the case, why would that not be his primary tool in the local church? No, he wants to penetrate it, permeate it, influence it, teach it, deceive it. So all of us have to be diligent, diligent, diligent. This is not just a matter of getting the facts right. This is a matter of living life to the full as God intended and holding on to the end. And that's our aim.
that we all finish well, and that we finish well together. I hope that even this morning you'll consider this, that you have a strong desire to persevere to the end, to stand firm, not be tossed to and fro like so many doctrines might do, like Paul wrote to the Ephesians, not coincidentally. But that we grow up in Him who's ahead. I pray that your desire is to grow up in Him and to be firm and not to be like a child who wants to taste and try everything and change his opinions and, and desires easily, but to grow up into maturity. But I also hope your desire is to help every other brother and sister in this room do the same. That we hold on firmly to Christ and we hold on firmly together. And that we finish well. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth, to reveal the truth. Thank you for giving us the word to sanctify us in the truth. Thank you for promising that the means to our spiritual freedom, our deliverance from the kingdom of darkness, the spiritual death all around us, the dominion of sin over us, is the truth. You tell us the truth. The good news is truth. That though we are great sinners, you are a far greater Savior. If we would abandon sin and embrace you, if we would believe the, good, the gospel, the good news, that in our great sin and separation from you, you loved us. You sent Jesus to die for us. Before his death, he lived perfectly for us so that his righteousness could be ours. His death could be our payment. And you raised him from the dead so that his sacrifice would be fully acceptable to you and provide the means for our new lives as well. That same mighty power that raised Christ is now at work in us who believe, and we thank you for that, this promise of resurrection. One day we're going to live in the truth, undeniably so. One day we're going to live in the joy of the truth, in the absence of sin and unbelief and deception. We'll know how good it is then. Father, I pray we'd aspire to that now. And Lord, I pray that you would guard us and convict us against haughtiness and arrogance and self-sufficiency and self-exalting you know, ideas that we're, we're better than. Father, I pray that we would be humble seekers of the truth and always desire to walk in it because that's just where life is. That's where you are. To choose truth is to choose you is to choose life. Lord, may we guard it individually and collectively. May we speak it and teach it humbly, lovingly, but confidently. And may we never abandon it. May we hold truth to the end. Lord, this is my prayer for us all in Jesus' name. Amen.